This is the A-B Testing 343 Podcast, a podcast where we ask one of the three listeners of the A-B Testing Podcast three questions about almost anything. ABT 343 is a fun slice of what's going on in the world of modern testing. Let's get started. We're back again for another episode of ABT 343, and we have one of our three listeners with us today. Today we have Percy Ababa. Say hi, Percy. Hi, everyone. Uh, I hope the other two is uh, out and about and will be listening to this. Yeah, we'll get this out uh, sometime during the holiday season. Uh, Happy to have you here, uh, getting a lot of great feedback on this series. So glad to have someone who's practically a show regular here today. (laughs) Percy was on the show we did without Brent in Philadelphia three years ago, four years ago now, maybe four years. Yeah. Wow. A while back. Yeah, three, four. Yeah. And then uh, also also took part in our 100th episode and is the creator of, well, in a way, the creator of one of the three dot slack dot com. He put our Slack group together first. Yeah, I was just the guy who signed up. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of credit to be the guy who signs up for stuff. Um, yeah, I do think that... Um, you know, it's it's something that's inevitable. I'm not going to pull a Thanos here, but uh, it's, it's it's something that you know it would have happened. I mean, there there is definitely an acceleration uh, among the listeners and the feedback, especially with how you and Brent, you know, are talking about kind of the mailbag questions that you guys get. It. I was like, man, how come nobody's ever tried to like bring everybody together to something that's kind of uh, like ten thousand conversations per minute. Yeah, one of the things we talk about, and I was in a conversation on Reddit over the weekend with uh, someone who was very confused about modern testing. And in this conversation, uh, I didn't plan to bring this up, but nice tangent to start off with. He said, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but he said, Agile is getting phased out. And I said, what? What do you mean Agile is getting phased out? I think it's market driven and 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 it helps. He goes, well, it's being replaced by CICD. (laughs) <laughs> and of course, I thought maybe you don't understand what any of these words mean. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, CICD is a way to achieve the agile principles, and and it got into another conversation, and and which involved into modern testing is not there to be something new to try and push the industry in some direction. Right. We're just putting a label on some things that are already happening, and many teams have come up with modern testing approaches without knowing modern testing and some people are recognizing this change is happening and want some tools and ideas to help navigate how to survive or how to best transition this move right and i think the um this is actually a really good segue into uh the the transition guide right which is you know it's it's not a it's not a thing that you're supposed to be able to uh follow and decide uh, specifically tell you what to do so that you can get to the next kind of level of the ca- of capability. It's, it's a way for you to evaluate and understand where you are. And then from there, you can build your, I guess, backlog on, on what you could do, whether the focus is going to be on tooling or skills or, you know, a blend of both or improving the process. But you know, at the end of the day, knowing what your team is capable of, breaking down whatever assumptions you have, on what a thing is or what a thing is supposed to be, um, you're you're definitely better off uh, from there. But that's that's just the first step. 
there's a lot more that needs to be done to get you to the point where, for example, you're switching from uh, chaos to growing, for example, right? From from your testing breadth uh, capability. So it's it's definitely a uh, it's 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 a good way to to look into where you are. Yeah. So Percy is talking about for. If, if any of the other two haven't seen it, is the Quality Culture Transition Guide, which goes along with principle number four, which is uh, the one that says we care deeply about the quality of our team and we coach and lead and nurture them towards a more mature quality culture. This is the one where you know, 20 years ago, we may have had a t- some manager somewhere say, testing is responsible for quality, which we know is stupid. We knew it was stupid then. We know it's even more stupid now. But... I would say even today that as we're making this transition, that testers or the people formerly known as testers need to be a big part and have some responsibility for driving the quality culture. And this spreadsheet I put together on the quality culture transition guide is some tips on how to help not even actually here. This is what missing what you are going to talk about is it's uh, a list of descriptions of how you ma- can mature your quality culture in several different ways. But what's, right. but what's missing is the guidebook. What are the tips that help you? How do you do that? How do you, this is nice to read all this stuff, but I'll open right. this first question up to you, Percy, is how do you lead a team towards a higher quality culture? You have a guidebook, but, it's, but you, have, you have some rules, but no guidebook. What do you do? Yeah, like personally for me, uh, based on my own experience, like one of the biggest detractors for this is is not really having a shared mindset. That that's really number one, right? So like when we say that something is something and that not everybody agrees on the same definition, I mean, look, quality itself is is a big <laughs> uh, question here. But you know, getting everybody in the same spot and like we talk about like what do you actually mean when you say uh, say regression testing, for example, which is probably an entire podcast on on itself on, on why that name doesn't really describe what we're trying to do when it comes to you know, performing the set of uh, testing activities that we have for that, I guess, coin term, right? So a shared mindset is definitely key. Uh, getting everybody on, on a regular basis so that uh, you will continuously communicate, um, be able to encourage everybody that, hey, this is not the end all and be all of what you know about, you know, what we're doing. Uh, so if you have test specialists, uh, as testers, you have to have the uh, desire to, to learn some more and, you know, expand that circle of comfortability when it comes to just, okay, I'm just testing this ticket. Like what are the things that will be affected if I don't do this well? Um, uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's essentially a people problem, right? It's not, it's, it's not going to be a, a knowledge thing or a process thing, but like, how do we get these set of people who you call as your team members, you know, to share that, that mindset. And there's going to be complications around, you know, how often people move in and out of your team uh, or depending on your, the resourcing model that you have within your company uh, on how you'd be able to deal with that. But, yeah, that's just really the tip of the iceberg on, on the challenges that you have in making sure that, you know, you have a common mindset on what we actually think our quality quality culture is and where we need to be. What are some things, and I agree, in fact, the definition I use of quality culture, the first three words are a shared mindset. 
100% on board. But how do you do that? What are some things you can do to help build that shared mindset? Like one of the things that we've tried so far has really been, you know, setting up a community of practice, which is really just a fancy way of saying, hey, let's all come together. Let's talk about, you know, something that we've learned. And then we'll break that out into, is that something that we can actually apply uh, across the board? Or does it open itself up to kind of more questions, more scrutiny, but at least we're all doing it together. Um, There's definitely going to be, you know, a few people who will kind of take over the conversation uh, in the first few meetings. But uh, as, as you go along, uh, as everybody realizes that, Hey, this is a safe space, you know, for us to be in, to express, our concerns, our questions, and you know, encourage them that hey, no, no question is uh, is is wrong, right? So it's just a matter of uh, you being able to either understand like why are you actually asking that question? What is you know the context around uh, why something is important to you that needs to be you know broken apart? It it kind of puts you in a position where uh, you kind of give up whatever assumptions you have and declare them on the table. Yeah. I've been thinking through that while you were talking and it's, um, it's a fun challenge. It's a leadership challenge. Uh, I think of course there's the other things you can do just when you see people do things that are, I'll back up a little bit. Quality culture is a very easy thing to hand wave about. I've talked with plenty of teams that says, yes, we care about quality, but when you look one level deeper, there's a huge bug backlog. There's, massive amounts of tech debt and customers are angry. Those two things don't align. You have to get past the hand wavy part and actually get some agreement and some alignment and that shared mindset, make sure it's really right. true and, and do the things like rewarding the behaviors you want to see and course correcting and realizing it's, it's a, it's definitely a marathon, not a sprint. It takes a while to get that culture. One of the stories I often tell is how Microsoft got their security culture, which is one of the few examples I can ever recall where a culture was created via mandate. It's a big bet. It's an expensive bet. It doesn't always work. But in 2000, at Microsoft, year 2000, uh, Code Red, Slammer, the I Love You virus were all like back to back to back uh, exploiting vulnerabilities in Microsoft software. And... The whole company went offline for about a month where we took, maybe it was longer. There was massive security trainings and threat models done across the board and code review tools were added, analysis tools to find these, these potential, many potential errors. Uh, but that quality culture lives through to today, where, or that's quality culture, the security culture lives through to today. <laughs> Two completely different things. Um, <laughs> and it, I don't know that would, that worked because there was a crisis and usually by the time a company has a quality crisis, it's too late and they're about to go under. So the challenge with building a quality culture is trying to build that culture before it becomes an urgent issue. If your customers are all complaining and you can't even get a build done because the CICD is broken or your build system is broken and there's just no way to get the work done, then it's kind of too late to build that quality culture. You're digging out from the bottom of the hole where it's better to try and kick that off when things are running pretty smooth and people go, oh yeah, we're doing well. You can use that quality culture transition guide to figure out, okay, how can we turn up the notch? What can we do even better? 
Right. I mean, like one of the things I think to, to be able to rally everyone towards a particular goal is, you know, figuring out what is, what is that shared priority that everybody has? And that, that is a very difficult, that it's a very elusive thing, um, you know, to deal with, especially when, when you have, you know, multiple teams, uh, or if you have, you know, like 140,000 employee company, right. And, and that's, uh, that's kind of, you need the rallying point where you can start like bring things up. So let's say if we, if we talk about, um, like agile, for example, a lot of the, because of the success of, uh, folks at scrum, uh, a lot of the uh, misconceptions now when it comes to agile is that agile equals scrum and then scrum equals, uh, you know, the rituals. That right? drives, which is not- that, that drives me crazy. Which is not, and like which, even which is the, probably the, what was meant when that guy said that when they said agile was evolving into CI/CD, they probably equated agile and Scrum. But anyway, right. go on. Right. right. No. So at the end of the day, uh, there's definitely going to be you know multi. Even though let's say let's let's stick to the uh, Scrum context, for example, even if we're reading all the same Scrum guide, right? Everybody has completely different. Uh, definitions of, or at least interpretations of, you know, what, you know, what the rituals are for, which one comes first. You know, it's just a lot of chicken and the egg thing when it comes to like, if, if you do the rituals often enough, then it becomes natural. Uh, or the other side too would say, like, do what's natural for you. And then eventually it'll, you know, seep into uh, kind of your team dynamics. But uh, looking into like what that shared priority is, all of these things will break apart. So like this reminds me of a story with, have you heard of the company called Alcoa? Yes. Right. And when, when they had that, uh, probably around the early nineties, maybe, or the early eighties, when they hired uh, Paul O'Neill as their new CEO, and they were really having some issues, you know, within, within the company. And what he did was, you know what? Everybody cares about safety. But the thing is, he did not define what safety was, but that became like a, a rallying call for for everyone else. And then from there, everybody had a direct responsibility to make to ensure, you know, safety among everybody within their groups. And you know, long story short, it quintupled their uh, uh, their valuation, their 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 income, and they became one of the most you know respected you know companies in the world and one of the safest companies in the world it's just finding that one thing that everybody can rally about um personally for me that's that's still kind of elusive i have some hints here and there but uh it's it's something that i i do want to be able to you know bring forward and and get some partners you know to work with me across kind of all the um, uh, development centers that we have uh, all over the world yeah, this this conversation I didn't realize it till we've been getting into it reminds me of I just finished reading the Phoenix Project, right. uh, which is I don't know if you've read it yet or not, but it's a story about DevOps transformation. But right. the company massive are having massive quality issues. Uh, it's kind of like the story I described before. They can't get a build out. It takes even if they can get a build to finish, it takes there's approval process. It takes forever to get something out, and they talk about how that transformation works, but 
you and I have done these things before. I don't think we're either one of us are particularly bad at them. My one gripe with the book that goes a little bit too far into the world of fiction is that the transition happens too easily. <laughs> it's right. like, oh, all of a sudden it's CICD everywhere and they've removed right. dependencies and they're able to ship stuff all the time. And it's just not that easy. And I don't say it's particularly hard because the technical part is it's hard enough. Uh, one other example is they, they rewrote a mobile app and shipped it uh, to customer delight in a week. If I remember, if I remember correctly, so, eh. but mostly it's the people part, the transitional part that that drove me a little crazy. So it really ends up being a leadership problem, uh, or no, not a problem, a leadership challenge. Uh, so it leads me to one question: as people are going through this, and I think you may have some ideas on it, is making this transformation requires a leader. Growing your quality culture requires some leadership to do. Uh, what are some challenges you may face if you're doing that like you and I have done within a company versus someone who's hired as a consultant or, or a consultant working or someone working across divisions at a company? What are some challenges that may make that full-time person on the team uh, more difficult or easier than someone who's visiting the team as a consultant? Well, it's the, it's, it's the idea of uh, permanence, right? Where... Uh, you you kind of don't have that person who will be, be like, uh, let me try that in, in a different way. Just imagine you're hiring uh, a head coach that's part-time, right? It, it, it doesn't work. Like where the head coach will only show up on game day. It's, it's, it's very difficult to kind of force that. And then the learnings that you're supposed to do as a team throughout the week, that needs to have a more, kind of like introspective eye of kind of a uh, uh, of the coach that that gets you like how can we do do this better right so the idea of always at the end of the sprint retrospective kind of gets thrown at the window from a uh, you know digital quote unquote transformation perspective because there's a lot of things that a coach might see that needs to be addressed right away instead of waiting for that to kind of fester that can be done when you have someone that's there and it's focused. A shout out there to the retro, one of the most important meetings or probably the most important meeting you can have, especially in regards to the quality culture transition guy, because that's where teams have been exposed to that, that I work with. That's the time we bring that out during retro time. It's like, oh, let's, let's see what we could do here. We just say anything about this. It's a nice reference during retrospectives. There's a book, I don't know if you ever read by... I forget his first name, Maxwell, called The Five Levels of Leadership. Mm-hmm. You heard of this book? I have not heard of that book. Uh, it's, it applies a little bit here because the first level is you're put in a position of leadership, and which means you've been made a manager, you've been, or in our case, maybe you're the, the sole dedicated testing specialist. You're the person who's leading the quality culture. You're in a position... Someone could announce you in that position. You could say, hey, I'm going to try and lead us towards a higher quality culture. You're in a position of leadership. It doesn't, as you know, at that level, it doesn't give you any rights or privileges unless you're a company that has a very specific emphasis on hierarchy. But it's that next level where you have to give people permission to let you lead them. Uh, 
people have to give you permission to let them lead them. Let you lead them. God damn. People have to <laughs> people have to give you permission to let you lead them. And what that means is you don't just get your leadership by level. You have to let people know you're there to help and they accept that you have good ideas. And that may be one of the hardest levels to get past. You have to establish credibility. Uh, in Weinberg's Secret of Technical Consulting and in a book called Getting Naked by Pat Lencioni, they're both really good stories. The latter being a business novel like The Phoenix Project, but much better. Showing how important it is to when you're trying to be a leader for a team and help them through transition to, to be humble, to ask questions, to not be afraid to ask the dumb questions, because what that does is that establishes it, what it helps you learn, which is the important thing, but it establishes trust. People know that you're not there just to boss them around. You really do care and you, and you want to help them. And it isn't until you get to that level, you get to level three, which is where you begin to produce results. So until you, as a leader, and you can, again, much easier being that permanent part of the team because you have establishing trust is not something you can do on a sporadic basis. You have to be engaged. So once the team is, understands that you're there to help and they want you to help them, then you can b- begin to move the team down the path of, the, of improving their quality culture. You have to ping me later the title of the book. I didn't write it down, <laughs> but that would be a, a good next uh, read for me, uh, which actually does remind me uh, with another organizational book called uh, Requisite Organization by Elliot Jack. I have not read that. Uh, one. Uh, uh, Elliot Jacks. It's uh, it's uh, it's it's interesting because he looks at it in and also the same like, uh, but this one is in like seven levels or like maybe even eight or like higher levels than that, where he breaks it apart into um, the the amount of time that you have to be able to do your work, right? So you're looking at, so the, the first level essentially are, you know, the, the people on the ground, right? So whether you're a sales clerk or a traffic beat cop, for example, where your work is mostly kind of routine. And then the second level uh, is, you know, first line managers, right? So from, I guess from, from a sort of software perspective, this would be uh, probably our leads or maybe senior uh, developers who uh, have more responsibilities, not just from a day-to-day basis, but they look at things that need to be done, let's say, at the end of a sprint, right? And then the next level up is uh, instead of like focusing on the deliverables every two weeks, now you have quarterly deliverables. The next level up would be your directors uh, and so on and so forth, right? So where your, your vision needs to be, can't be enacted up until you have maybe months or for CEOs for like, like really huge companies, they have years or maybe even a decade to be able to enact on something. And I think the way we look at it, especially from setting that culture, like whoever it is that's assigned for those needs to have a different outlook uh, and make sure that everyone else underneath the, uh, the lower levels uh, can can also focus on their work and get their work uh, done pretty well. But you have a larger vision of you know where you need to be. Let's say if it takes you know a lot longer to to be enacted on, and then that's I mean tying that back into the Phoenix Project, it's a it's a it's almost a typical um, fairy tale story, right? Where like everything is now like 
happy a happily ever after you know type of thing when like all the individual work that needs to be done that leading up to that point where they can actually release in a more consistent cadence and they can capture feedback uh, at the level where they can actually act on it that's that's the hard work that we're kind of hey instant coffee time you're not you know you're not uh worried about you know waiting for your coffee beans to grow and roasting them and grinding them and you making that cup of coffee type of thing so uh there's there's definitely a lot of i guess dimensions that we can look deeper but uh i i have to get the copy of that book that you just mentioned just now i'll send you some links definitely helps um so we've talked a lot of the strategic part we know we need to we know it's a leadership issue we know that it's difficult and it takes time and all those things but let's go into some more of the tactical so what are some in helping teams improve their quality culture what are some examples of maybe one or two examples of tactical things you've done like how how have you addressed specifically some aspects of improving the quality culture so one of the first things that I actually almost always do when uh, when I get asked to join, you know, a given team is that I, I ask them for like what are the activities that you that that everybody actually does, right? So like if you have a like let's take a look at your last release and the contents of what you've released. How long does it did it take for that to pass through your pipeline? for that to get into the hands of the customer, right? And digging deeper into that, then it shows, all right, we're actually spending like, you know, 15 business days to do, you know, user acceptance testing, because that's still a thing in my world. And um, uh, we take a look at what they're actually doing in detail, breaking that down and see if we could get rid of some of the things that are, are redundant. And most of the time there's really very obvious things that show us why, hey, why does it take you uh, 12 hours uh, to generate all the user data that you need to be able to perform your tests? Um, because hey, it's, it's a person doing it. And the automation attempt was um, employing uh, Alan's favorite tool, which is Selenium, to click through the browser to create the data. Boo. <laughs> so instead, so like, changing things like that into, you know what, let's talk to the developers. Maybe we can... Maybe there is an API in the back end that creates this data for us. And you can just see the difference where what used to take 12 hours now takes, I don't know, three minutes uh, to get things done. So this is an right? example so of how, I'm going to interrupt for a moment. This is an example of how the principles overlap and support each other because it's definitely improves the quality culture to get rid of that technical debt, but you're doing it also by identifying and mitigating a bottleneck in your system. Right. And then most of the time, um, because of how, you know, how busy everyone is on their day to day and the expectations, a lot of these things are just accepted. It's just like, yeah, it's, it's, it's how things are done. And That's the way it's always we're, been. We're, we're, we're going to continue to do it. And it's usually one of the most, I guess, poisonous things that will <laughs> you know, happen in any kind of uh, team culture. And, and that's what's so important. It's important that this is where you and I and people driving modern testing can really help out is we don't we we 
we're not good with the status quo. We go, why couldn't this be better? It's the old fable that I won't retell today about why the woman cut the ends off her roast beef before she put it in the pan. Look it up. Uh, I know you've heard it. You're laughing. Um, but it's it's a great example of just, this isn't right. How can we make it better? Do you have another one? Yeah, no, no. Uh, it's, it's really something that is, uh, it's very similar. Um, like the, I've told this story a lot of times. Um, I'm taking like three shots right away. Uh, um, when, when I first joined the company that I'm in, it used to take us uh, 29 days to upgrade a single site. And that includes all the necessary you know, evidences for uh, a company that's you know, under specific uh, regulations for us to be able to release something. And um, from there, they've, they've been trying for the past you know, four years on how to get it more um, efficient with and without automation, with and without you know, tooling, but they still, they can't go past that 29 days for a single, uh, 29 day turnaround time uh, to test the site before we can actually push for an upgrade. And um, what we realized was really just a ton of redundancies, right? So you, you fa- fast, I'm going to pull a Phoenix project here. Uh, fast forward kind of four years, that 29 days is, can now be done in uh, 90 minutes. And uh, we can now handle, instead of just dealing with a single site at once, we're dealing with uh, 600 sites uh, from an operational scale perspective for uh, for uh, upgrading. And I think the, the key there really was all the silent noises in between the handoffs, you know, A, data creation, B, making sure that the build environment is you know set up properly, making sure that the uh, configuration uh, uh, schemas are are correct, and we're not going back and forth. You know, looking into more difficult uh, bugs to to be able to debug because it's just you know a flag that everybody ignores, and there's no kind of sense of like static analysis based assertions where we can now check that hey, is this actually the last known good configuration that everybody kind of blessed and, and approved saying that this is this actually works right uh, before that was just all kind of throwing the ether saying no one's looking at it because you know we're too busy dealing with the UI stuff well the other thing that we did with the UI stuff was we converted a majority of our tests from uh, selenium based click things into just replacing 80 assertions of if this is this element present into just a single visual test, right? So we, we work closely with uh, some of the more leading uh, uh, AI-based uh, visual comparison tools uh, that's out there. Uh, and that really accelerated a ton of what we're, you know, what we're able to do. So now it's, it's not just the testers that are consuming uh, you know, that information, handing that off to the dev team, but now the product owners are actually jumping in because like, we made sure that throughout that approval process, uh, they would be included in it. Uh, if it's a matter of, hey, there's a, there's a weird bug that, you know, the visual check has captured, is this actually something that, you know, we, uh, you know, we introduce? Like when we're dealing with uh, internationalization, for example, across multiple markets, 
we can't hire every single person that can speak a certain language or can be broke. Um, so like having something like this and we can just hand it off to an auditor or a reviewer saying, oh, right, that's, if that is uh, uh, an intentional change based on uh, like the intent of the wording that we're really trying, trying to make. So it's, it's an easy, easy, fast way for us to, to flag uh, certain diffs and hand that off to the person. And the person can easily understand without you know, sitting on it for, for days and days. So it's, it's really a whole, I guess it's a whole process fix uh, kind of for us, for that particular group. Yeah, sounds nice. I think as you were talking, I was also thinking we just need like a, a book filled with these stories of how these improvements have been made. I'm not suggesting writing a book, but I'm just thinking <laughs> yes, if I talk yes, to you all, all these choices, <laughs> like, like I talked to my you know, uh, people around Unity where I work and that have gone through this, and there's all kinds of stories about how a good low-hanging fruit is just going back through the bug backlog for people that have big bug backlogs and deciding what are we going to fix and what are we not going to fix? And let's take the bugs that we said we're going to fix. Let's just fix them now. Uh, it's, it's a very freeing thing to free up that just bug tech debt, but you have some process tech debt you're dealing with as well. Getting people to, uh, I've helped people begin that journey towards collecting data to help understand where customers are seeing success and failing. And, it's it happens again that happens slowly it isn't like overnight like in phoenix project where you have nothing and the next day oh we have all this wonderful customer telemetry telling us exactly what's going on it's like it this is an iterative process that has two steps forward one step back to get the right data it takes a while uh, but it's it's worth the effort all you're just looking at is how can we what are we doing how can we improve what we use with that that transition guide is let you look at holistically at, I don't know how many there are anymore, eight different ways uh, you can improve your quality culture, different attributes, areas, and look and see what's going on, figure out where you're at, figure out what different behaviors or tools or processes your team could be using. So good examples of that. Um, here's, here's an oldie, but it's a goodie. Uh, since you're talking about stories, maybe it's time to put the notion of a uh, beautiful modern testing book in your backlog. Way in the back of the backlog. <laughs> I mean, like I, I uh, when I was, I guess, shout out to Adam Goucher as the uh, kind of the, uh, the, the editor and one of the contributing authors to that series, but it's, it, it kind of you know, puts you in a, uh, in an anchoring position. Like listening to like the stories that everybody had. Like you, you wrote something. Um, uh, Scott Barber's story was actually you know, pre- pretty good as well. Uh, it's one of the things that I can remember at the top of my head. But you know, it's it's things that hey, this is what's what's happening. I think this is what you're doing with the uh, uh, ABT three four three podcast. It's a matter of uh, yeah, maybe writing. someday we grow into that where I curate a book like Adam did with uh, Beautiful Testing. Uh, that that could work. We'll work out. We need to get some more stories. And it'd be great to get some of these stories of, uh, I forget the name of the company I quoted yesterday in the Slack group, Mercado, I think it was, who discovered they were doing modern testing before they heard about modern testing. 
And I'd love to get right. those stories as well. Like what happened? How did you get there? And they're, right. you know, Atlassian to some extent do things that are like modern testing. It's not a thing we're making up, right. which I've said before, but it'd be fun to gather stories, people that discovered it without us. Cause we're just there to put a label on it and to help people that are going, what the hell is going on? My job is changing. Well, we'll give you a little bit of a map. Right. Lots to do. It has been, as always, absolute pleasure talking with you, Percy. Uh, these are good stories, fun stuff, and a lot for me and I would expect for the listeners to chew on or think about. So thank you a ton for being on the show today. Uh, you're definitely welcome. It's it's always a pleasure. You know what? Uh, just, just a side note. It was around this time when I first found out about the A-B testing podcast. And it was really, I, I was, I was uh, reading up, uh, scrolling through my Twitter feed and here comes uh, Mike Larson's uh, list of, uh, you know, must hear podcasts. And he had the, he had the best description of us. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> uh, of, of the, um, you know, of the next year. And I, I downloaded your, uh, like th that was the first time I was actually picking up family from California at that time. And I, it started playing as we were driving out of the airport. And what you hear is full volume intro of the, uh, uh, the riff that you have in the beginning. Uh, and I had to like turn it down because it was a shock, but then I, I listened through the ride and I guess two of my family members, Listen through the ride as well for the first uh, uh, A/B testing podcast that you know the three of us shared uh, that experience. So it's you know it's it's been like what four or five years now, and I, I do appreciate everything that you guys are doing, um, and it's it's grown into into something. And is it okay if I if I close with a question? Yes, absolutely. I, I know we started with you know defining modern testing as. Uh, you know, the acceleration of shippable quality. Has there been any nuances or changes to how you understood that the first time you and Brent coined, uh, coined that term, fast forward to now, on, on what that means to you? Yes and no. So what's happened to me is like the first, Brent coined that phrase. This is actually a very good question because Brent coined that phrase. Said, yeah, this makes sense. Sure, how do we do this? And then we started talking about very early, before we had a name for it, how we wanted to approach quality. Before we called it modern testing, which as we all know, nothing modern, not about testing. It's just an antidote to traditional test last testing methods. But as we talked more and more, and then when I got the notion somewhere around in the 60s or ish that we should, not the years, the episodes, that we should have modern testing principles and trying to iterate on those is that I began to realize how much they supported that mission of, of accelerate the achievement, the shippable quality. What was odd, it was nothing, none of it was consciousness. It wasn't like, okay, how does principle number two promote the mission? How does principle number three promote the mission? I didn't even think about them separately. When I, we did the principles, just trying to capture all the stuff that Britt and I had talked about and aligned on that we cared about. And probably what was the interesting part, the insight was that 
all the things that we cared and aligned about without even thinking about it directly aligned with accelerate the achieve and achievable quality. Uh, so that was really the bigger insight is that I thought once the principles were done and we had iterated on them and then we had talked through all of them and I put together talks on each of them and courses, the, the farther and the deeper I got into internalizing what these principles were, what modern testing was and why we cared about it. It was just, I can't even call it serendipitous because you knew it would happen, <laughs> but yeah. the alignment with the mission just was super, well, I was going to say supernatural, but that's a different thing. The alignment with the mission was natural and it just happened. And it tells me that it all, it all is fitting together as it should and it really just goes back to our the values the we knew this was the right thing uh we had talked about it a lot and everything we had talked about aligned with that mission statement so it's probably the backward answer of what you were expecting we never went back and looked at the mission statement and said well can we make this better uh, we just kind of left it as it was. Although one of my employees, and I like this one, Brent doesn't, but she shortens it. One of my former employees, still at Unity, uh, says, accelerate the delivery of customer value, which rolls off the tongue a little bit better. And I think right. it tells the same story. I think it's I think it's fine. But yeah, just it it's all aligned with, again, what we think, but also what we see going on, which is... Uh, which is nice. It makes it make sense. It makes it for me, at least it makes me feel even stronger in that. It's the right thing to be talking to people about and sharing with the community. Well, thank you. That That was a fantastic (laughs) question. All right. Uh, We should wrap it up here. Uh, I will put your, your Twitter handle. You have blog links, books, public appearances. You want to plug at this point? Uh, Twitter's fine. All right. Let's <laughs> <laughs> keep it simple. Okay. We'll put that in the notes for the show. Get this out in a few days. But uh, have a wonderful, happy holiday, Merry Christmas, and uh, we'll chat with you again in the new year. Thank you, Percy. All right. Will do. Thank you, Alan. All right. See you. All right. Bye.